because cancer's the big C, you know? Like, when people find out it's not cancer, they think, oh, great, like, it's fine. Like, I don't particularly remember if I had anyone say that, but I remember everyone was just relieved that it wasn't cancer. And I was like, no, but it's still bad. Like, she has lifelong complications, you know? Um, she was in hospital for 99 days. That's a long time. This week, I'm chatting with Emily Moritz, whose sister was diagnosed with a brain tumour at the age of 16. I'm Sam, and this is another episode of Conversations with Earl Grey. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Earl Grey. I'm Sam Wan, and we are nearing the end of the year. The back half of season two is coming out right now because life has just been incredibly busy. But I'm so excited about these conversations that I have had and I am going to have in the next couple of weeks. We've got so much in store for y'all. We've got my friend who's going to talk about anxiety as a Christian. We're going to talk about motherhood for a mother who's lost her mother a a while ago. We're going to talk with my friend Brendan, who's a counsellor for the local council. We're going to talk to Jenny Denny about her work in the music industry and also about body image. And today we're talking with Emily Moritz about her experience with her sister having a brain tumour. We will be talking a little bit about grief, a little bit about hospital experiences. So if you do find any of these things triggering, please talk to someone or call Beyond Blue or Lifeline at 13 11 14. Well, grab yourself a cup of tea and join me for another Conversations with Earl Grey. How do you pronounce your last name, Emily? <laughs> Moritz. But I've heard, Mor- I've heard every version, so you won't shock me. <laughs> yeah, Emily M- Moritz. Perfect. Where, where, where is that name from? Yeah, so as far as I've been able to tell, it's not related to Mauritius, the place, per se. Um, it's like a Dutchified version of a French word meaning more, like dark or Arab. Oh, okay. Because I'm, I'm Dutch, so yeah. Right, there you go. Or of Dutch um, ancestry. Yeah, of Dutch ancestry. That's fantastic. And um, so... I, I always like to start with asking a question to my um, to my to the guests. If you were a you know our, our podcast is called Conversations with Earl Grey. So if you were a beverage, what would you be? Probably a matcha latte. A matcha latte. Yeah. What? Why is that? Ah, because I really like matcha. Um, and. <laughs> It's a nice drink, <laughs> which is probably more about my uh, my taste buds as opposed to uh, my character. But yeah, mm, there you go. Well, we've previously had people who like um, wine, or like actually the last person I just talked about told me exactly how the type of tea that she would be, and I said you must be a very precise person. <laughs> you could psychoanalyze that. And I was just talking to you before. You go to a Bible college. Correct. Um, and you've also written a couple of books previously. Um, what what did you do prior to jumping into something as big as a degree in 
the Bible and theology. Yeah, I well, my undergrad was in radiography, um, so applied science. So I did that at Cumberland campus, and then I worked for a few years in a hospital in Western Sydney, and loved that, but didn't particularly love the shift work, and also always wanted to go to Bible college. So. Yeah, yeah, and um, you've written a couple of books. Um, tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, so I've so far I've written exactly a couple, as in two. Um, so I've, well, published. Um, so I've written a biography of Thomas Clarkson, who was a Christian abolitionist in the 19th century. Um, and it's the only biography of him in print at the moment. So when I stumbled across him, I thought, this guy needs his story told. Uh, so yeah, it's a children's biography um, in a series by Christian Focus. Yeah, so Thomas Clarkson, who is he from England or England? Yeah, yeah if you've yeah. seen the film Amazing Grace, um, mm-hmm. he's very not quite he's not quite accurately portrayed there, but he's the guy with straggly hair, the accent, the token eccentric character. What drew you to this character? Yeah, well, the film really. So <laughs> it's one of my favorite films. I really enjoy it. Um, and I was watching it for an exam because uh, my church history exam covered the abolition period. So I thought, oh, I'll watch a movie to study. And I was like, who is this guy? And then I found out there wasn't much on him and I couldn't read a book on him. So I thought I'd see if I could write one. So jumping from radiography to theology and the Bible and then kind of historical understanding of a particular character in history that has very little, little have been written about. Tell us a little bit more about yourself in terms of, you've written, you've dabbled in hospital work, you've dabbled in, you're studying, you dabbled in writing. Um, you seem to be someone who's just, has a lot of interests. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm, I get quite passionate about the things I'm passionate about. Um, and I, <clears throat> I'm the sort of person who likes projects. So obviously I like having something to work on. So what's your latest project? Uh, yeah, so actually this week uh, my book came out, which was a memoir um, called Two Sisters and a Brain Tumour. And it's about, yeah, me and my sister who six years ago now was diagnosed with a brain tumour and our journey through that. Yeah, yeah. So how, how old is your sister? Um, she was 16. She turned 17 16. in hospital. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And tell us, how what was that? That must be pretty shocking um, for you, not only for you, not only for your sister, but your family and everyone else. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, my mum has been sick all my life, so I sort of grew up. She has multiple chronic illnesses, so I sort of grew up against that backdrop. Um, so in one sense, it was something I'd had to process before, but Jasmine, that's my sister, um, she always seemed to be, she was always the happy, healthy um, one, the one that I expected nothing ever to happen to. Uh, so it really, really shook me. It was difficult. And how old were you when that diagnosis happened? Yeah, so I I was 21 um, and in my final year of radiography. And how did that... Because the shock affects 
the shock of big news affects all of us in different ways, right? I was just reading a book on um, family systems theory um, about how in a family system, when grief or some sort of shock comes in, everyone reacts in their own personal way, but at the same time, everyone reacts according to their role in their family. How did you brunt that news? Yeah, I I was quite, I wrote a lot. I did a lot of writing, a lot of thinking, um, because that's me. That's how I process things. Um, I think, yeah, as a family though, I think, to be honest, I mainly went into the, okay, I'm her older sister. What do I need to do? Because older sisters are supposed to protect your younger ones against the world, right? And all of a sudden I found out I couldn't. And so how could I now in this time? And what did that look like? Um, and especially with my mum being quite sick on and off, like I, I sort of became another caregiver in that sense. And so, and I knew that and I was aware of that and I was determined to do it 100% as well as I can, could because um, it seems like the way to survive, I think. Were you able to provide that protection? Yeah, some ways, some ways not. I think, like, it was... I tried to be as available as I could. Um, I think I was probably at the hospital every second day. I, I did my best to... <laughs> to help her in all the different ways, but there was so much I couldn't help her with and so much I had to surrender to God. And I think that was probably an ongoing, and surrender to others as well. And I think now I would have, I would have done that a bit better. I think then I wasn't used to reaching out my hands and asking for help. So yeah, I think what I've was, done that a bit. Yeah. So what you, you gave us that posture of reaching out and asking for help. What was so difficult? Well, you did, but what was it so? What was so difficult about reaching out more during that period? To be honest, I think I didn't really have the energy. Like, it was very tiring. It was very emotionally draining. I didn't have time to try and help people understand where I was and what I needed. I think, which is partly why I felt like I wanted to write a book about that a little bit as well. Um, but I just think, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You'd do a lot of things differently if you could, but in the moment, it's very survival mode. And I think also you, you feel like you're placing a burden on people, just like the words brain tumour, right? They're big and inescapable, and people don't know how to respond, and I didn't have the energy to help people respond, you know? I was like, I felt like it was my number one role to help my sister respond. And, I mean, honestly, that's something I can't, couldn't do, but or I can't do because I'm not her, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine, because I remember one of my friends who had one of their child pass away at birth. Um, their, their child was missing, missing a huge part of the skull. Um, and so passed away within 50 minutes of, of, of birth. And they knew that was going to happen. And he tells me how he went to a he went to the hospital he went to a shop one day to get something and the the shopkeeper said oh um, how did 
how did how did you know I, I remember you came in and you were expecting a baby how is it now and he replied to the shopkeeper oh she's dead and the shopkeeper not knowing how to respond and I can imagine it's the same thing if we haven't experienced a relative have a brain tumor or ourselves having a brain tumor the concept of having a brain tumor is so foreign that naturally we don't know how to respond to that and i think when people find out that, so it was a benign brain tumor so it wasn't cancerous and i think because cancer's the big C, you know, like when people find out it's not cancer, they think, oh, great, like it's fine. Like I don't particularly remember if I had anyone say that, but I remember everyone was just relieved that it wasn't cancer. And I was like, no, but it's, it's still bad. Like she has lifelong complications, you know. Um, she was in hospital for 99 days. That's a long time. How did she go through it as a 16-year-old? Yeah. How did, I mean, sorry, I, I want to personalise that. How did Jasmine going through it as a 16-year-old? To be honest, in some ways she went through it far better than I expected. And in in other ways, I don't know, there's no no rule book for for dealing with cancer, but, oh, sorry, not There's no rule book for dealing with brain tumours. But, yeah, I don't know. To be honest, she wasn't conscious for a lot of the time. Okay. Um... You know, she had 10 operations, so she spent a lot of time recovering from anaesthetics um, and being in a lot of pain and being very drugged up. So, yeah. And walk me through, you said you spent a lot of time next to her on, on the side of a hospital bed. Yeah. And you're describing her that she was probably unconscious for a, a lot of the time. What was that interaction like? What did you, what did you do? I tried to figure out who I was. I wasn't sure if I was her sister in this situation, if I was her parent in this situation, if I was like her protector against the world in this situation. And I felt like it changed second by second, minute by minute. And being, it changed second hour by second and minute by minute. And being a 16-year-old, sometimes she wanted my help and sometimes she definitely didn't want my help. And just trying to figure out who I was and what that's like and process my grief and uncertainty and try and help her process hers, but also realising that I can't do that for her. That was really difficult. I, I wanted her to... I'm a talker. I wanted her to talk more and share her deep thoughts and that's... That wasn't her in that period of time. For many reasons, it couldn't be. Um, Yeah, so I found that difficult. And did you figure out who you were? Piecemeal, bit by bit along the way. And six years later, I'm still trying to figure out who I am. You're listening to Conversations with Earl Grey. We'll be back shortly.
I think as siblings, you compare yourself to your sister. You say, they're this sort of person and I'm this sort of person. And because they're like this, I'm like that. I think that's sort of how, you know, um, relationships in one sense, like, sort of maintain a balance. Um, but my sister's personality coming out of hospital was completely different. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't worse, um, but it was just different. And so I think being in hospital for that long changes you and coming that close to death changes you. And so even now, I'm still figuring out who I am. I like how you said being that close to death changes you. How did it change you? How did it change your sister? Because she was like 16-year-old, right? You're, you're, you're still figuring out who you are. And you, as a 21-year-old, you're still figuring out who you, you were back then. And for that to hit would have been, yeah. What, what, how did it change both of you? I think, in one sense, it was really good. We, we had this shared experience now. We'd become closer than we'd ever been before. And I think four years difference, you're not always close as kids. And we were, you know, I wanted to read, she wanted to play with dolls and they're not very compatible hobbies. Uh, so yeah, it brought us really close together because we had that shared experience and that was really special. Um, and I am so grateful for that because I, yeah, who knows what life would have been like um, if that hadn't happened. And also I, it made her reach out to God more, um, to trust him as her, her personal saviour through all things, um, even things like this, I think. Yeah, and she just, she got a drive that she didn't have before because she was de she'd survived and she was determined to, determined to thrive. She knew what she wanted to do with her life now. Um, and I think as a 16-year-old, obviously, you, you don't know that all the time. But she came out of hospital very, very driven, and very determined. And that had, in one sense, that had always been my, my characteristic. So that's also a bit strange to adjust to. I want to just return back to the hospital scene. What were some of the uncertainties that you were experiencing? And tell us, like, you know, I don't want to say obviously, but, but definitely that, you know, your sister could die at any moment. Yeah. Your, your family could, you know, have a huge grief. Your life yeah. could completely change. Um, what were some of these things that really made you uncertain? And how did you, how did you walk through that? Yeah, I think it Obviously, the uncertainty, again, I don't want to say obviously, but um, yeah, it was difficult not knowing if she would survive. And I think when you go into surgery, you know, especially brain surgery, um, they do read out a list of, you know, this could happen and this could happen. And of course, it always includes death. Um, so you, you do look that in the face and you say, like, I signed the consent for a few of her surgeries. And that's, <laughs> that's a scary thing, you know. That's an incredibly scary thing for a 21 year old to do. Yeah. Let alone anyone to do.
and then it really felt each moment like a god she's in your hands now like that's it that's that's a good goodbye what was it like to sign those being 21 i felt quite proud that i could do that um and that yeah. i could do this for her that and also for my parents um that my mum didn't have to be there that my dad could still be at work that that was something I could contribute because I could contribute so little. Um, so that felt good in that sense. It also felt terrifying, but someone had to do it. She needed the surgery. As I'm talking to you, this sounds, there's a, there's a deep strength in you. There's a deep, um, I'm not saying that your voice doesn't sound strong, <laughs> you know, um, but but there's a as I look at you and I, as I listen to you, there's there's a there's a deep strength that when I first turned on Zoom and saw you, I, I didn't expect. It's because you to thought see. I looked younger than I was. Well, yeah, probably, probably because you look younger yeah. than you are, but yeah. but at the same time, just not knowing. I, I guess that's the delight of these of conversa- conversations, right? Um, there is there is this deep because we could I could imagine me just sitting there going paralyzed with indecision uh, over indecision after indecision as to do I sign this, do I not sign this? Am I culpable? I'm 21. I, I don't know. I don't have siblings, but I I imagine I would just sit there and. I don't know, whittle my, my, my pencil, sharpen my pencil until it's gotten to a stump, you know? But you just, in the way that you just said, you just had to do it. I mean, in a sense, by the time you arrive at the hospital, the decision's already made. And in another sense, I didn't want to freak my sister out by showing that I was in any way worried or concerned. Um, I think at the time I really felt like I had to be strong for her. That, that's what I could offer. I could offer her Jesus and I could offer her myself and that's it. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I think there's, there's, a, there's not only that strength, but there is that gentleness there. Sorry, now I'm just, I'm just commenting on you. Um, Psychoanalyze me. <laughs> um, there's a beautiful scene, I think. I don't know if you've... Have you, watched or, or read the play Wit um, it's it's definitely worth watching you oh, can, great. You can I actually love you can watch it you can watch it on YouTube actually okay. um, Wit is about a a professor a, uh, a, a, exting- a distinguished professor in in 16th century poetry especially in John Donne's poetry She's at the top of her field and she receives the diagnosis of stage four ovarian cancer and she's going to die. Um, it's inevitable. And so the beginning of the play is the diagnosis and the end of the play is her death. Um, it is 90 minutes of walking through that. And there's a scene, I think, that I always return to. I watched the play once when my friend produced it. There's a scene in that play where the nurse is there and the main character she's she's zoning out of consciousness because of you know you know she's she's dying and 
she's hot it's that they put her on a lot of morphine to ease the pain she's at the end and the nurse sits next to her and starts talking to her and then stops and before she leaves she takes she takes a moisturizer on the side squirts it out and then takes the unconscious lady's hands and moisturizes it and then leaves for me that that is the most profound moment of that play like at the end of the day the, the lady's hands in being moisturized is not going to affect much but the nurse in that moment gave her the dignity that she is still human and these tiny things matter and i just imagine as as i hear your story of sitting there in the in the room with your sister what moments of humanity and dignity did you see and experience Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, the small things did matter. Um, they mattered so much because you didn't know if they were the last small things. Um, and in many ways, it was tiny little moments that that changed the day forever. I remember one day it was raining, pouring, and I had a cold. And nowadays, you wouldn't be allowed with a cold in the hospital. But um, you know. And we were looking out the window and there were two, two women with a, with a um, picnic rug over their heads running in the rain. And that just, that was just made our day. Like that was just really a funny moment. Or like the cleaner staying after work to sing happy birthday to Jasmine when she had her birthday in hospital. Um, even though we'd sung it 50,000 times before, like just little things like that. It made us such a difference. Um, people remembering to to ask both of us how we were um, instead of just giving us information that's really special as well yeah I love that I love that image of watching someone run through the rain do a lot of watching in hospital but it's like I guess it's like what you said right when you're brushing that close to death any moments of simplicity makes that's, that's aliveness. Being able to run through the rain, being able to feel rain on your cheeks or, you know, singing happy birthday. We, we forget the beauty in the ordinary. Yeah, it's very easy, I think, in hospital for the world to become very small. Our I Spy games certainly became very repetitive. Um, and it's, it's so lovely to get a reminder of, of a bigger world out there. So how, how, how long ago was, was, was this event? 2015. 2015, so six years on. So yeah. your, your sister would be 22? Yeah, correct. Where are you guys now? Yeah, well, my sister has moved out of home, um, so she's working full-time as an occupational therapist. 
um, which was a decision she made coming out of hospital. She wanted to be occupational therapist and, yeah, and she wanted to, because she knew what it was like not to be able to do anything for yourself, she wanted to help people be able to, to live and function. Um, yeah, so she's out of home. I'm studying from home. Um, and, yeah, things are very different and good. Perhaps maybe the question that I wanted to ask, what I wanted to tease out is where are you now in relation to that event? Is that event a thing in the past? Is that an event still looming in all the decisions you make? Or, yeah, how do you, how do you or, and your sister conceive of that event? I think... This year is the first year that has become an event in the past, which is actually really lovely. Um, I think when Jasmine came out of hospital, I had always wanted to go rural um, and work rurally, but I didn't know what she would be like um, coming out of hospital. I didn't know what if she'd have what um, ongoing complications, what support she would need. So I, I stayed relatively nearby. Um, for her and I also wasn't sure what the future would bring if she'd be able to live out of home if she'd be able to work full-time what that would look like um and so it really did quite overshadow my first few years out of hospital uh, sorry yeah out of well out of hospital but also out of uni um and I was constantly making decisions with her in mind and I think it's nice to feel like that doesn't have to be the case anymore, that there's some stability. I, when she first came out of hospital, she had a lot of a lot of ongoing things and she still has health complications that need to be managed, but, like, she's not in and out of hospital all the time anymore. Um, there's there's not many crises, which is lovely. And... And what made it seem like it's the past? Is it because you wrote that book? I think because she's independent now. And she doesn't need me. And I've also processed her not needing me, which is another whole entire, entire thing to do, have to do. Um, and I've processed a bit more who I am in relation to her and who she is now, because I feel like we've both got sort of stabilised. I, I want to end with, with two things. What was, what was writing that book like? Because you had to, that was six years ago, right? You have to go back to past memories. Was it a traumatic time of writing? Was it actually a healthy time of writing in where you could just re-narrate? Um, what was it like? It was... I think people often say, oh, it must have been so cathartic to write that book. Um, but I, So I wrote it in 2018 um, because in 2018 my mum was diagnosed with cancer um, and so I thought I can't process this tragedy until I've processed the last one and I knew I, I felt like my memories would be overwritten and I felt like the book should stand as a testimony to God's faithfulness. Um, so I wrote it at the end of 2018 and I wrote it very quickly um, but I'd planned it all out before then, but I only had these like a few weeks to write it in. So I wrote it out and 
the writing just came very quickly because, you know, I was the main character. Um, that was fine. It was the revisions over the next few years and then once it became accepted for publication and revising and revising and doing that in community with my sister, my family, um, making sure everyone was, was um, happy with how it went and that our memories were all on the same page. I think that taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about how I perceive myself back then and how I perceive myself now and how I'm not the same person I was in 2015 but also some ways that oh maybe I still am and just a bit of an objectivity of myself and the journey which was really helpful. And I guess the last question I want to ask is where was where was God in all of this? That was that was my question too the entire time not not where was he, but what was he doing? Like, what? where's the purpose? Where's the good? Romans 8.28 has always been my mum's favourite verse, and I never understood that because I thought, you've been sick all your life. You've had so many disappointments and so much pain. How can that be your favourite verse? All things work for good. Like, I've not seen the good. And when Jasmine was hospitalised, I thought, I know there is good because I know who God is. And so he was very much there and very much present. And very faithful. But I think in the looking back on that, I can see just how clearly that he was there, that he never left. And I guess to that question that you asked yourself, what was he doing? Did you ever receive an answer? Yeah, I, I did. And that was, that was the best thing. <laughs> Um, of the whole of the whole experience because as a teenager I'd been really frustrated with God because I wanted to talk to my sister about um, God and spiritual things I wanted her to have a really vibrant relationship with him and I wanted us to have a vibrant relationship I wanted us to be the kind of sisters you read in books that talk about things and really enjoy each other's company um, but we were just very different as children and so I prayed to God those things. I said, God, um, I want my sister to love you more than anything. And secondly, I'd really love her if we love her to love me and me to love her for us to get along. But if you don't do the second one, that's fine. She can hate me as long as she loves you. And coming out of hospital and the years that followed, I realized God had used a brain tumor to answer those two prayers and to answer them positively. Um, we have a good relationship and she has a good God. John Donne's Holy Sonnets, sonnet number 10. I just want to read that out. And maybe you can respond or you don't have to. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death nor yet canst thou kill me from rest and sleep which but thy pictures be much pleasure then from thee much more must flow and soonest our best men with thee do go rest of their bones and souls delivery thou art slave to fate chance kings and desperate men and doth with poison war and sickness dwell and poppies or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then 
one short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. And I would say that was that was my that was the solid hope underneath all of that that went through that if Jasmine did die, I knew whose hand she was in. Thank you so much for your time and your vulnerability and um, your strength in vulnerability. Uh, and I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Where can, what is, what is the name of your book and where can we get it? Um, it's Two Sisters and a Brain Tumour and you can get it from The Wandering Bookseller. You can get it from Christian Bookshops, um, Kurong, Amazon, um, all the standard places. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and um, it was a pleasure talking to you, Emily. I enjoyed it. Well, that's it for another week of Conversations with Earl Grey. Have a Merry Christmas and I will see you straight after the Christmas week. The second half of season two will be coming out over these couple of weeks in the holidays. Next week, I'll be chatting with Beth Valentine about her experience as a mother, having lost a mother herself. Two weeks later, I'll be chatting with Nikki Florence Thompson about her experience with anxiety. We've got a lot more episodes coming up in January, so I'm looking forward to sitting down with you and another cup of tea. Have a Merry Christmas, and I'll see you soon.